Hello, and welcome to episode 277 of Constructing Comics, a podcast building stories one page and one panel at a time. On this episode, we have an interview with Madeline Holly Rosen, creator of Boston Metaphysical Society on Kickstarter now. This is Matt, and I'm joined by Constructing Comics co-host Noah. Hey there. Madeline, thanks so much for joining us. Let's do as we normally do when we start an interview. We ask for two things. We ask for a quick bio and an elevator pitch for uh, for the book. Sure. Uh, my name is Madeline Holly Rosing. I am the writer creator of the Steampunk Supernatural series, uh, which includes graphic novel, prose, and now audio drama, Boston Metaphysical Society. And if you uh, are not familiar with the story, it's about an ex-Pinkerton detective, a spirit photographer, and a genius scientist who battles supernatural forces in late 1800s Boston. Very cool. So, and this Kickstarter here is for, for volume two. So this is a, a collected edition we're getting here? Yes, uh, volume two is a compilation of uh, my four sequels, uh, which is The Scourge of the Mechanical Man, Spirit of Rebellion, Ghosts and Demons, and The Book of Demons, all in one trade paperback, plus a bonus 10-page story uh, with art by Roberta in Granada. Um, that is exclusive to this trade paperback. Yeah, that's that's pretty nice because, you know, a lot of folks who maybe were al along for like the, the single issues, you know, getting mm -hmm. this collected volume is, is a little bit of uh, a bonus material. Yeah, and, and we have a terrific cover by Marguerite Savage. So I, I was very happy to get her on board and for Roberta to squeeze me in between um, uh, Doctor Who issues. <laughs> Yeah, the nice. art looks amazing in this. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Emily Hugh was our artist for issues one through six, which I now refer to as volume one. And Gwen Tavares picked up the reins for the four sequels. Very cool. Um, so, you, you know, you talked a little bit about uh, the story. Um, it seems like, you know, there's a little bit of uh, historical reference that you're using and then you're, you know, you're blending story elements in. Did you go back and look like the history of like early Pinkerton agents or anything like that to sort um, of? A, a little bit. Um, just give you a, a brief history. Uh, when I was at UCLA Film School, this is was originally a pilot that I wrote while I was there and then adapted. I'm sure you've, you've heard this story a million times. Um, but also while I was there, I wrote a script called Stargazer, which was for the Sloan Fellowship. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it. It uh, You have to write a, a story that features scientists or engineers um, as real people, not caricatures, and the science has to be right. Uh, the one that I wrote was a biopic about a Scottish American woman who came to this country pregnant, penniless, and abandoned by her husband, was hired by as a maid uh, for the director of the Harvard Observatory in Boston, and in the late 1800s, obviously. And uh, eventually she was hired to be what was then called a female com com uh, computer, uh, crunching numbers and eventually discovered 10,000 stars and developed a stellar classification system. Um, I actually won the Sloan Fellowship with this script and but what it did provide me was with all the historical knowledge that I needed that's the basis of Boston metaphysical. <laughs> so I you know it was that was already there. the the, the, the foundation was already there from that research. And to answer your question, yes, I did do research into Pinkertons, um, particularly for, for Samuel, who's you know obviously our ex, Samuel Hunter, our ex-Pinkerton. And 
uh, I, I based um, one of the defining events in his life on, uh, on a real incident where the, the Pinkertons worked as strike breakers and uh, things went sideways. So this seems like this is a story that's been sort of in various states and maybe sort of creatively in your mind for, for, for a long time and you've sort of been formulating different aspects of it. Um, yes. And you did mention that we, we have heard that a lot, that a lot of people, you know, have aspirations or, you know, dreams of, of, of filmmaking and then, the, you know, various reasons those things don't happen and that they realize that, you know, this will blend really well into the comics medium. Um, at what point did you make that decision? Uh, well, I had uh, Boston Metaphysical as a TV pilot had, had done fairly well in competitions and been shopped around and, you know, but at that point in time, uh, steampunk really hadn't hit the mainstream and with the costuming and period piece, it's expensive. Mm -hmm. It'd be very expensive to make. Uh, and and CGI wasn't quite up to what it is now, where you can just create on your laptop um, from your home. Uh, so it was suggested to me that I adapt it and then take it, take it back, use it as marketing material to take it back to TV and film. Well, a funny thing happened on the way to that. And I discovered one, I really like writing comics and I love the indie comic creator community. And I just said, okay, I, I found my space. You know, I'm, I'm pretty happy here. Let's dive in here, do the best I can here, and then expand outward. And if the right partner comes around mm -hmm. to take it back to, you know, either animation or live action, great. But I'm not going to beat my head into a wall, you know, trying to make this happen. Um, it'll happen when it'll happen. And, it, you know, it was like when I was picked up by SourcePoint Press, you know, I had tried to get picked up earlier before we had finished the original six issue miniseries. And, you know, that didn't work. So I just figured, OK, I'm going to finish this because I finished what I start. And uh, and then, you know, over time, my relationships built and I got to know, you know, Travis McIntyre and the crew over there at, at SourcePoint until it just you know as they grew and i grew it became a good fit um so yeah i'm i'm if it happens great if it doesn't happen great uh i'm much happier defining my own universe and career here so awesome so i'm going to check in with noah to see if he has uh, any questions there because i asked the first couple well, yeah, actually, sorry to take a couple steps back, but, you know, you talked about sort of like your historical, you know, base for the for the, the script. And I'm wondering mm -hmm. about steampunk. What 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 sort of was it just period that made you want to sort of blend steampunk and history or was a did you have an interest in steampunk before, you know, learning about um, all this? When it was suggested that um, this actually started out as a, a pretty standard um, period detective piece set in the late 1800s. And a friend of mine suggested that I, I develop it in a steampunk world. And I had heard of it, but didn't know a lot about it. So did some reading and research and totally agreed with him, particularly, I mean, I love the paranormal and supernatural. I love those genres. So I'm like, uh, this is a perfect fit. And so I redeveloped it. Um, uh, using the steampunk elements, um, but it, it was never, um, 
you know, it, it, it never, it was never originally intended that way. It just, it just kind of worked out. And there are like, there are types of steampunk, like there's steampunk as an aesthetic. And then there's like steampunk as like a practical idea, you know, where like everything is sort of um, like, you know, imagined from the just idea of everything being steam powered and gear powered and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm like, when you're like approaching the artists, like what, what kind of direction are you giving them respectively? Like, as far as like the, the, the aesthetic goes. I often will pull other images to help them. And, 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 you know, I say like, don't copy this, but use this as inspiration. And we talk about it, uh, you know, and go back and forth. Um, and then, you know, when I get the pages in, you know, I may make little notes of like, okay, let's add more little electricity here. And, and let's do like, you know, a more steampunk ish looking weapon here. Uh, I mean, it is it is a subgenre of science fiction, so I mean, I feel I have leeway to to play with the technology and make it a little bit more advanced than it would actually be. Mm-hmm. But um, what is to, to go back to your previous question? Um, what's great about hanging out as a writer in the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, particularly in uh, the United States, or even, you know, an alternate history of the United States, is the amount of change that was happening then. There was a lot of social, cultural, technological change all happening at once. People were just, some people loved it, some people hated it, it confused them, and as a writer, what it does is it provides me with um, organic conflict. Yeah. Um, right there, plus uh the technology is analog. So one, it's easier to explain either in prose or to your artist. And visually, it's easier to explain when you see gears and other things to your reader. Um, I mean, because, you know, for a lot of people, you know, you got your cell phone and it pretty much operates by magic. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Now, for most of us, this is magic until, you know, you start tearing it apart. But uh, I mean, this way, you know, the, it, it, I do try to make the science accurate when I can. Sometimes I can't because the story has to take precedent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but yeah, there, there will be little things throughout the, the series and issues where if like, if you're a, a chem person, a chemistry person, you're going to go like, ah, that's right, you know. You're going to know. And, and, you know, that's the fun part for those who can like, ah, that's right. Like, well, that's not so much, but, oh, but that is, you know. Yeah. And also, I guess this is something I've been talking with Matt and I've been talking with other people about lately. And I'm interested in your opinion on this, but there's like that. I think like Pixar has a, a fundamental of writing, like where you have to write for your audience. Right. You know, mm-hmm. so like like. I know for me, like I'm getting creative. I like to get into like the nitty gritty things like that kind of thing. But like, sometimes I have to like pull myself back and be like, okay, just make it interesting at this point. Right. You know, that kind of thing, like not get it too into the weeds. So, so do you find yourself struggling with that? Like when you're trying to like be very accurate? Um, well, I, I pick and choose my moment. So it actually, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you guys know, you know, we don't have a lot of space to explain things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we have to cut to the chase very quickly. 
And one of the things that um, I, I, I like to think of what I've done, it's, it's all character driven. And the tech is in the background. The tech is simply an organic part of their world. And in fact, most of the time, it doesn't matter how it works. It just, you know, either it works or it doesn't. And then every once in a while, I'll do something that will, you know, tell more about the tech or explain a little bit. But the stories are never about the technology. They're always about the people. So I have a question, and this is story related as well. Do you find this time period, um, you know, fun to write in? Because we've had writers before, you know, I, I'm thinking of somebody that we had on that was like talking about how they did a story in World War One, And they were like, you know, what's really cool about this is I can have a guy, you know, in a car, you know, and then next to him is a guy like still riding a horse. So you still yeah. can like, you know, there's a bit of technology, but then there's still, you know, a bit of the old world feel to it. So is that uh, appealing to you? Oh, yeah. No, that, that's definitely fun. And I mean, that that's something uh, when, when Roberta came on to do the 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 10 page short, uh, you know, the, one of the, the, the first panels and scenes was, you know, you've got your steam engine car and then there's a, a horse and, and buggy, you know, going by. And, and, and you, and you'll see this all the time in, in Boston metaphysical in the, in the background scenes and you'll see airships, you know, in the background, um, that, you know, they're just a normal part of, of their world. Uh, it was fun to be able to do uh, a steam in, uh, a, a steam driven car with, uh, and then on the other side of the street was a horse drawn, you know, buggy or carriage. And, and you see that throughout Boston Metaphysical, you know, you'll see the airships in the background. Um, you'll still see horses, you'll see trolleys. Um, you'll see all of that. And that's part of the changeover of that time period. Uh, going from one tech to another, uh, which is always a lot of fun. And, and it gives the, the scenes uh, a lot of ambiance. Cool. So one thing that I found interesting when you were sort of giving us the, uh, the, the elevator pitch, and then we went into um, you know, a little bit more about the story, it seems like you have a, a, a lot of female creators uh, on this book. Do, do I have that correct? That is correct. Um, I have intentionally only hired female artists. Nice. Yeah. That's... Uh, and, and sometimes well, with Gwen, Gwen was the artist and the inker and the colorist uh, with the 10 page short. Um, obviously, Roberta was the artist and Warnia. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. Sahadewa. Uh, she is the colorist. Uh, the only a permanent male fixture is Troy Pateri is my letterer and um, he's wonderful. Um, I hope he stays with me forever. Uh, but it's also sentimental reasons because many years ago before this even started, I just had scripts and just getting going. Um, I was introduced to him um, and, and they said, oh, this is Troy. He's a letterer. He does indie comics. And he went through this and he says, yeah, I'll do it. You know, he was like rifling through my script. He was like, yeah, 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 I'll do this. You know, little did I know how great he was and even, you know, work for Top Cat. I mean, you know, ignorance is bliss sometimes. I'm like, okay, you can be my letterer. You know, I had no idea that I, you know, I, I, I just, you know, he was a gold mine. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, for me, um, I think it's really exciting to to have different voices, um, you know, talk about comics, you know, um, you know, nine out of 10 times, probably more than that. It's it's, you know, when Noah and I are doing this, it's it's a white male that 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 we're interviewing to to talk about comics. So it's really great to, you know, hear different voices. And it's awesome that you sort of have carved out that niche where you're you're trying to you know include you know female voices in this male dominated sort of industry yeah and, and quite frankly part of its marketing as well um but it's just something i decided to do and since i'm the one writing the paycheck mm -hmm. i get to do that <laughs> that's really cool so you 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 know you probably you took a similar path, you know, once you make a decision that, that you're looking for an artist and, you know, different, you know, creative people to come on this team. What was your, your process of finding those people? Was it, uh, you know, a call out on the internet? Was it, you know, walking down artist alley going, you know, that person's stuff is really great. They would, they would fit in really well with this project. How did, how did you find your team? Um, well, with Emily, uh, well, I had gone through, I had searched for about nine months like through deviant art and you know a ton of places and, and i thought i'd be having there's a couple people i thought would come on board and then that didn't work out and then through my uh sequential art classes um a friend of mine had a mutual friend and she says hey i know this girl she goes I, i've seen her stuff i think she'd be perfect for for what you're doing I said great she just graduated from art school uh her name is emily hugh and at the time she lived in South Pasadena. So uh, we met and um, I hired her to do two uh, sample pages from the script, completely different types of scenes. And she nailed it, I loved it. So I signed her for the six issue miniseries and you know, bless her soul, she stayed on it. And we got it, you know, five years later, we got it done. Um, she was awesome. Uh, the rest of the team, came through another mutual friend, uh, Dave Elliott, who um, has done, you know, A1 Comics, and he's been in the comics industry for a long, long time. And he introduced me to uh, Gloria Kali and Fariza Kamaputra, who, who shared the coloring for uh, issues one through six. And then, well, actually issues one through three, and then Fariza left and then Gloria was on board and did the rest and, and did the cover. Um, and then when uh, Emily moved on to Bigger and Better, as great artists always do, uh, I had been around long enough so I could talk to people and I let people know I was looking for another artist, preferably female. And uh, another friend of mine came to my table at Clockwork Alchemy, which is a, a small steampunk convention here in California. And he said, you know, how, do you know Gwen Tavares? I said, no. He goes, I, I think she would be good for you. So I said, okay, let me go look her up. And in the meantime, while I was looking her up, she emailed me. Um, I did the same thing with her. She did, you know, character sketches and um, did this beautiful portrait of, uh, of Granville T. Woods and um, Tesla together. And I went like, okay, that's it you're in. And um, so she'd been with me for the last uh, four one shots. That's awesome. Uh, Noah, do you have a, a question here? Yeah. Um, circling back to the one I had started to ask about. How did I get into you, comics? Yeah. How did you get into <laughs> comics? Yeah. That's sort of my, that's what I'm interested in. Yeah. 
um, by by accident. It was because I was. <clears throat> let's put it this way. My brother probably has one of the largest graded collections of Darede Daredevil comics in the country. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't think he actually reads them, but he collects them. I myself had no interest in superhero comics. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know anything else existed. Just didn't know. Until I took the sequential art class to learn how to write comics. And the syllabus obviously required us to read comics and then I started reading, you know, Saga and Watchmen and Astro City and a bunch of other stuff. And it really pissed me off because these were great stories and no one bothered to tell me about them. <laughs> you know, I never knew until like late in life that, wow, all this amazing stuff exists and no one told me. <laughs> That's amazing. So, yeah. So here I am. Yeah, but yeah we, that, that's that's how I, I fell into comics. That's awesome. And that's, you know, we talk a lot about that on the podcast and it's sort of why it's good to have diverse creators, but also diverse stories. We, we the people writing superhero books on this podcast, which is mostly geared towards indie creators, is very mm -hmm. small. It's, it's usually a widespread of like genre. And that's. Mm -hmm. You know, that's just like, it's just any, it's like any other storytelling medium. You don't have to just tell one story. It's, it's just great. Um, yeah. it, it's exciting for that reason. Um, yeah, no, not that I'm poo-pooing superhero comics because I mean, they're great. It's just not my thing. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll leave it to those who it's, it's their thing. <laughs> yeah. So when DC and Marvel come to your door, you're just like, no, no, thanks. You know? Oh, well, one, I don't think they ever will because it's just I, I, I don't have the background and the knowledge base for their IP to produce something. Um, you know, unlike with Lady Mechanica, you you guys know I'm writing a story for Lady Mechanica. Oh, awesome. I was going to ask about that. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that that was really interesting because I'd forgotten a, a small press had just put a general. Uh, you know, on a post on Facebook is like, okay, you know, we're looking for various writers for different IPs and, and posted it. And, and I don't remember who it was. And I don't think it was Marsha from, from Joe, from Joe Benitez's productions, <clears throat> but she saw my name there and contacted me and said, would you be interested? And I said, <laughs> yes, I would. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I said, well, why don't we do this? Let me, you know, send me everything. Because believe it or not, I hadn't read any Lady Mechanica. And that was quite deliberate on my part. Because when I was first developing this and getting it out there, I wanted to make sure there was no overlap. I, I didn't want that, you know, getting into the back of my brain and, you know, regurgitating accidentally, you know, Lady Mechanica stories. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I, I read it, all of it, you know, last year, it was really clear that there was nothing like, I mean, there, we were two polars, very, very different, which was great. Um, other than we had the same sensibilities in how we want to tell stories and, and what we want and themes for our stories. And so I submitted three story ideas and they said they love them all, but one in particular. And so that's the one we're going to do. That's very sort cool. of what I was thinking about earlier when I asked about, 
<clears throat> steampunk is like aesthetic and then also as like function you know mm -hmm. i feel like yeah. i like i like the art and lady mechanic of books because they are it's more just like an aesthetic that kind of thing where it's just like oh it, it's beautiful the, yeah it's the rule of cool in that book and it's awesome um yeah uh, do you have the artist for that short oh well it's not a short it's it's going to be a a, a three-issue miniseries very wow. cool that's awesome that's yeah and great. it's and, and as far as i know it's going to be joe oh really oh nice <laughs> yeah. that's gonna yeah. be awesome well that's so like he like you said like you will not have like you we don't have space like you know as creators we don't have space on the page with his art <laughs> you're gonna have like even less because he's just like mr detail and everything oh man yeah it, it's an interesting process we're doing um in that <clears throat> i'm gonna be writing uh 20 page issues and then when they approve it hand it over to Joe, or I know there's another gentleman who has been doing some art as well. So I'm not absolutely sure Joe will do it. I, but probably, and then he's going to do whatever he's going to do because he's Joe, Yeah, <laughs> which well, is fine. And yeah. then when they're done with the art, they're going to send it back to me to add any necessary dialogue, to make any dialogue changes and, and things like that. And I'm like, okay, sure. You know, you're the boss. I mean, I love notes. I, I, to me, this is going to be tons of fun. I, I enjoy playing in other people's sandbox, particularly when I'm not in charge of production, because then I can write and just go like, here, you deal with it now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, when you said that, you know, when you start something, you finish this or you finish it. Um, so with this volume two, is this sort of the conclusion of the this series or you sort of putting it to a point where there's a continuation? Yeah, uh, the even though the, the four stories in volume two are technically standalone, mm -hmm. there is linkage between them. And at the end of Book of Demons, um, they're leaving Boston. Okay. And uh, so, yeah, I already have another four. Uh, I, I've decided to move away from one shots, at least for a little while, because I just needed more room to, to breathe, but I'm not doing a six issue miniseries because that's crazy talk. And uh, so I'm going to do a four issue miniseries uh, that's already outlined out. I have a draft of the first issue done. And um, yeah, I, I guess, well, some of it's I've talked about. They're going to Colorado Springs, Colorado, and Tesla is back. Nice. Oh, nice. Yeah. So, so that cool. that's going to be a lot of fun and bring in new characters. And we're going to see, you know, how the West looks under the great states of America, as I call it, um, under great house rule. Uh, as usual, there's more politics. There'll be politics and supernatural and all of that blended together. That'll be oh. really cool. And so with uh, so with the first miniseries, how long did it take you to get like those six issues created? About five years. Okay, so you're doing like one or two a year when at yeah. that time. Yeah. yeah. How long did it take with them um, this one? uh for the four four issues yeah that was yeah. was about almost four years yeah yeah so it's yeah. it's basically a, a book a year uh pretty consistently uh this year will probably be the only year i won't have something new coming out um 
it just had to do, you know, there's been some um, put like the staffing changes and, uh, you know, with the pandemic, um, we did the audio drama late last year, which we completed and, and, and that's out and that'll go wide uh, probably in a month or two. Um, uh, so yeah, cause I'm writing this and, you know, I just, I need to get some other ducks in a row. So that probably won't be on Kickstarter until early next year. So I pretty much have the next few years already mapped out. That's it's done because I have to work on the Lady Mechanica story too. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Do you find that you've have like people from when the, the series started, like you have like an audience that sort of stuck with you through all these years? Yes. That's and, awesome. and that's, and that's, what's been the most rewarding is a people come back year after year or, uh, you know, now that the cons have, you know, started up again, they're coming back and they're going like, oh my God, what am I missing? Cause you know, we had those gap years and I said, okay, I think I saw you in 2019. So you're missing, you know, ghosts and demons and book of demons, but otherwise I think you're caught up and they're like, okay, we'll get those. And so, oh, now it's, it's great when, you know, people tell me they, they come and look for me. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that's really cool. And so uh, one more question off of that in regards to the radio drama, so who is, um, are you, are you producing that yourself and directing it and everything, or are you working with like another audio production company to do that? Um, I have, uh, I had a production team, um, uh, Eddie Louise and Chip Michael, who were the co-creators and producers of another audio drama called Sage and Savant. It was on for four years. In fact, it's still on. You can go listen to it now. It's this fabulous, fun, steampunky time travel story. And, and in fact, it was Eddie Louise who, who I blame for all of this uh, because pre-pandemic, we were hanging out at the Nebula convention and she said, you really have to do this Boston metaphysical as an audio drama. It's perfect for it. And I agreed, but I went like, I, I don't know where to start here. Cause I know I need, you know, an audio engineer. I, I need to compose. I need, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it professionally. It's going to be big and good. So yes, I am the producer um, and the executive producer. I was like, I am the money. So yes, <laughs> I get to have <laughs> executive producer credit. Uh, Chip Michael, her husband handled um, uh, audio engineering, the directing and the composing. Um, I wanted to direct, but once I saw him working with the actors and we have a full cast, we had 12 different actors working. Um, they were absolutely fabulous. I mean, I realized quickly that I, I didn't have the skill set that he had, that he, he really, handles actors well and gives direction very very well and so i shadowed him um so if we continue uh for additional seasons i suspect that uh, i'll probably shadow him for another year and then the third season i'll i would step in that's so cool are you so with boston metaphysical are you like hoping to expand it into other storytelling mediums like in addition to like radio drama are you looking to like get like maybe a, a like are you still looking maybe to option it as like a tv show or a movie or something like that um yeah you know sure i would love to uh if it's with the right partner yeah 
Mm -hmm. uh, that is really critical to me. Uh, both myself and my husband, a lot of time uh, and effort and, and money has gone into this and I'm very protective of this IP. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's trademarked up the wazoo. <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, you know, like with SourcePoint, it was, yeah, I wanted to get a, a publisher much earlier on, but I wasn't ready. The story wasn't ready and that's fine. And so everything happened when it should have happened. So I'm perfectly willing to wait. So, but it's, it's really about bringing the, the right partner on board. Very cool. So uh, I would have a question sort of related to that. Um, did you seek out SourcePoint or was it maybe they saw your stuff and they, they, they contacted you? And if you don't want to answer that question, that's perfectly fine. It's actually kind of funny, funny story. Uh, Travis McIntyre and I, we've actually known each other for quite a while. We met on Facebook and then we met at cons. We helped each other on and a Kickstarter and, you know, sharing digital issues as, you know, bonuses that, you know, we do for, you know, all of us do for each other. Um, and so we had, a, you know, developed relationship over time uh, along with Bob Sally, who was over, you know, at SourcePoint. Uh, long before I was, and, and Bobby and I became friends, and same thing um, until I I get this you know message from Bob saying he goes I want you at Source Point, you need to become part of the team. Talk to Travis, you need to become over here like right now. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, you know, you know, why didn't Travis? He goes like, no, talk to Travis. So okay, so I messaged Travis and said, Bob said I need to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> And so we got on the phone and we had a, a great conversation and it was interesting because he says, he goes, you know, I'm not sure I can do more than what you've already done. And I said, well, you know, that's not true. I can't get into comic book stores, you know, on my own. That's just too, that's just too difficult with what that they require, what diamond requires. Mm -hmm. He says, okay. And as you know, SourcePoint has, is very creator driven so when you come on board the SourcePoint team, you are responsible for calling up those comic book stores and pitching and getting your, your comic in there, which is what I did. Um, but uh, yeah, so I came on board and it was, you know, to me, it was a, a perfect decision because, you know, during the pandemic, they thought outside of the box and pivoted. And I think they came out of the pandemic even stronger. Um, and uh, so, like I said, it was just a, a relationship that just kind of built over the years in, until, you know, Bob yelled at me and told me to go talk to Travis awesome. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the rest is history. Nice. So, Noah, I'm going to turn the, the, the focus of the interview over to Kickstarter. But before I do that, I want to check in with you to make sure maybe as the, the artist on the podcast, you don't have any art or, or you know story questions before we we talk about crowdfunding i'm ready to yeah i was actually curious about kickstarter yeah that's a i think it's a good time to segue into that awesome so you know as we're here you know you got five days left on your your kickstarter um you're yes. doing really well um i think maybe i saw a message that you're you're going after your your final stretch goal um if, if i remember that correctly can you talk that's a correct. little can you talk a little bit about sort of the, you know, and I also think maybe this is your, your 10th Kickstarter. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the things that you've learned to, to get this level of success? 
on Kickstarter? Um, well, one is is being consistent, uh, delivering on time, and you know, and also consistently delivering quality uh, stories and art. Um, and uh, you know, it, sometimes it always kind of baffles me. It's like they like me, yay! But uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you know, also understanding the the marketing side is is critical. Um, in another life, I was a marketing director, uh, so that has been helpful. But there's still been lots to learn because things are always changing. Uh, you know, getting that email list up and you know, sending out the newsletter on a regular basis. And my newsletter is only once a month. I, I don't carpet bomb people with newsletters because one, I just don't have the time. Mm-hmm. But it's it's really a combination of that, is of building a fan base slowly over time, being consistent, um, delivering on time and, you know, getting that newsletter out so people don't forget. And then even when this Kickstarter is over, uh, I'll be sending, I'll do a monthly update, just letting them know what I'm doing either on Lady Mechanica or what I'm doing on something else or um, just to keep people updated with what's going on. Do you find that it's important to, to keep that, that, that schedule? You know, you said you have a monthly schedule and, you know, I, you know, I'm a member of a couple, you know, not a couple, I'm probably a member of like hundreds of, you know, mailing lists from, from creators. Uh, yeah. But is it important to you that you're like, you're, you're, you're giving content and it's not like, you know, I haven't heard from you from eight months and my Kickstarter launches tomorrow. Here's, here's my newsletter. Is it important to you to like, you know, have those newsletters that come out that be like, Hey, there's no, there's no crowdfunding news at, at this point, you know, but this is where we are, you know, this is, you know, th- yeah. this is the things that I have going on. So you're not just hitting up people, you know, you know, when the campaign launches or when the campaign's getting ready to close. Yeah. I think that's really important. Uh, it, it just to keep, people because well people will forget about you mm-hmm. so this is just a little touchstone to let them know that yes you're still working there's still stuff in the hopper uh and when it's coming up it's also a great way to slowly ramp up when you know you're going to have a kickstarter say in three months mm-hmm. saying like okay we've finished the the art for you know issue or you know the basic art is going to colorist for issue one of this new series so i'm gonna plan on starting a Kickstarter in whatever month. Um, just so it's, you just provide consistency to people that you're still there. And I don't know, uh, I know this is a uh, audio medium, but uh, like at a certain point I turned around and look at my bookcase because um, early on in my Kickstarting career, I'm pretty sure, well, I bought your book that, uh, oh, yeah. that, that, that you made about Kickstarter success. Um, yes. Do you still... Uh, I, well, a couple of things. Do you still see people getting that book? And since you wrote that book, is there any any changes to things that you have seen as as time goes as time has gone along? Uh, well, there is a second edition out okay. from the first one. That's the one with the green cover. So I so said, okay. I get the green cover, the green cover, uh, which was updated in 2020. Um, I haven't updated it recently. I'm, I'm, you know, that's another thing on my to do list. Uh, but yes, people still pick it up. Um, it, it's it's a fairly consistent seller on Amazon. Uh, I think one because it's it's brief, it's to the point, mm-hmm. 
you know, it gives you case studies. Um, I, I, and in the second edition, I'm able to, you know, I started using pirate ship and the simple export rates. So can educate people more on fulfillment and, you know, how to save money um, uh, on that and on postage and save your backers money on postage and, and things like that. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's absolutely still relevant. Sounds like, it sounds like I need, uh, I need volume two. <laughs> yeah. So one of the questions that Noah and I always ask, you know, when we have a creator on um, in the, when they have a podcast, I'm sorry, when they have a Kickstarter going on, what kind of Kickstarter runner are there? Are they? And uh, it's like, are you able to relax? Or are you checking the, the the count every every thirty seconds to see, you know, how many backers you have, where you are with the with the funding goal? And you know, here you're in the stretch run, you're trying to hit a, you know, a, maybe a final stretch goal. Are you able to to relax, or are you clicking the the refresh button um, all the time? Um, I think it's somewhere in the middle. Okay. Uh, and it also depends on on how we're doing at a certain time because uh, i try to keep things uh fluid and i will change up like when i send out additional um emails to the newsletter list um, i actually use the backer kit launch this time which i found to be very helpful uh and i'd recommend it <clears throat> um but you know the timing of that uh you know how i'm going to do that and, and i think about that very carefully based on literally you know how fast we're going i you know i look at kick track um though i always advise people not to look at kick track until after the first week because if you do really well your first three days mm -hmm. uh it's gonna say like you're gonna make a hundred thousand dollars like no, no. <laughs> yeah yeah and that's it, it's fun to see and it makes you laugh but it's like no that's not gonna happen uh, so, you know, when you're a weekend, then you can use it to help you track and where you're going. And it's like, okay, you know, today we're getting a little slower than I like, maybe it's time to send out, you know, an update through my other Kickstarters or, uh, another round of emails. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I just, I try to keep it fluid, uh, based on what the Kickstarter is doing and what, you know, there's the obviously the exterior goals of first making your funding goal and then your stretch goals. But then I have my, you know, my own personal goals and if they match up great, they, they don't always, but you know, we're, we're doing fine. I'm very happy uh, with, with what's going on here. And uh, we have a lot of new backers, uh, which is great who are brand new to the series. And to me, that's just terrific. So I know when I launch the next new material for the new story it will be very promising <laughs> very cool so i think that's gonna bring us to to a close but i'll check in with noah um final thoughts maybe final questions but before we tie everything up um so i looked on there you've got 700 and like obviously how many like over 700 backers yes so when it comes time to ship books and things like that, so is it just you and your husband or do you have other people helping you out? Uh, it's just myself and my husband. Prior to that, oh it, was, it was basically just me. But our last, uh, our Kickstarter for Book of Demons, we had almost uh, a thousand backers 
and wow. close to 700 packages to go out. And uh, let's just say we streamlined the process quite a bit by adding like a label maker and, mm -hmm. you know, just a, a bunch of stuff to make our lives easier. And, you know, getting, you know, USPS involved for them to come in and, and pick up like a hundred packages at a time, uh, which they would go like, I don't know if I can get that all in my truck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the manager, we have a small post office, sometimes the manager, he, it would be late and it was supposed to be a regular guy, but then there was some switch. So the manager would actually come over and pick it up in the truck. And, you know, you make fun, you know, friends with the, the local USPS manager. But yeah, that uh, that was quite an endeavor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can imagine. Very but, cool. But we 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 got it done. I actually still have a few outstanding surveys from that. And uh, what can you do? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. So let's uh, let's bring this to a, to a close. Um, Let's do uh, do a couple of things. Let's uh, let people know where the best place to to follow you um, mm -hmm. online. I'm assuming if we go to your to your website, there's probably a sign up for for your email newsletter there. But Correct. where where are the best places to to keep up with you online? Uh, best places will be uh, uh, the website bostonmetaphysicalsociety.com, uh, Facebook uh, Boston Metaphysical Society comic. Uh, Twitter is M Holly Rosing, though all you have to do is type in Boston Metaphysical and it's, it's going to come right up. Uh, I'm on Instagram, which is MC Holly and the numeral one. Mm -hmm. And of course, on Kickstarter right now until May 12th, I guess about 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Nice. And I know you did this at the beginning of the, the interview, but just tell us a little bit more about, about this book and this, this volume in particular. Sure. Uh, volume two contains uh, our previously published uh, four standalone sequels, which is The Scourge of Mechanical Men, A Spirit of Rebellion, Ghosts and Demons, and The Book of Demons, plus a bonus 10-page story with art by Roberta Ingranata that's exclusive to this trade paperback. It won't be anywhere else. And this fabulous cover by Marguerite Savage. Uh, rewards include obviously digital copies of this and volume one, if you're missing that, uh, as well as print versions, our new steampunk lapel pen of a steam engine, uh, the digital and physical copies of the novel and the anthology, uh, CD of our audio drama. So there's, um, there's a lot to choose from. Nice. And I just remember that sort of to tie everything together, we gave you um, a copy of Dino Thrasher's one, That's right. which That's was, right. which was drawn and lettered by, by Noah. So that's a little bit of a bonus uh, material for, for folks that's, that if they back right. to Kickstarter. That's right. And that's, if you pledge to a reward, uh, that's one of the, the 18 digital comics that you will re you'll be receiving. Very cool. Well, it was a lot of fun having you on and we would like to, you know, maybe catch up with you uh, maybe next year or whenever the, the next phase great. of this, this series comes out. Um, so we're going to have a link to the to the Kickstarter in the show notes. We want to make it as easy as possible. Anybody listening to just call up their pod player, scroll through the, the show notes and click that that link. We'll also put a link to to your website and your various uh, social media. 
in the uh, the show notes as well. Um, but okay, I'd like to. You. Oh, no worries. Uh, so I'd like to thank everybody for listening. If you could give us a rating and review on the podcasting service you use, we really appreciate it. If you want to follow the podcast, we're on social media. Twitter is at Construct Compod. Instagram is Constructing Comics pod and facebook is constructing comics just thanks for listening please be safe be nice to each other and go out there and make some comics thank you